I recently had the privilege and delight of participating in the wedding of a close friend. After months of planning and anticipation, meeting and getting to know future in-laws, doing marriage preparation classes, the bridal shower, deciding on a dress, the venue, the food, the guest list, and the details of the service, the day finally arrived. And it all worked. Everything fell beautifully into place. Even the February weather cooperated. I love weddings. I love the pomp and the ceremony. I love seeing everybody all dressed up. And I find it so moving to witness that mixture of deep love and fearful anticipation in the bride and groom's eyes as they give themselves willingly and wholeheartedly to each other. Ray and I have been married for 35 years this year, but it still profoundly moves me every time I witness a new couple making their wedding vows in front of their closest friends and family. Their commitment to love, comfort, honour and protect one another for the rest of their lives, it just warms my heart. But it also challenges me as I remember my own vows to Ray. I take you to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. With all that I am and all that I have, I honour you in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. This is my solemn vow. Such rich, strong, clear and purposeful words. Words saturated in love, devotion and oh such high expectations. Sadly, for many in our culture, these words have lost much of their richness and meaning and certainly any real expectation that they'll be upheld by either partner. While divorce rates have improved a bit in recent years, between 40 and 50% of marriages still end in divorce, with the average length of those marriages being only eight years. As I'm sure we're all aware, marriage itself is also rapidly falling out of fashion. It's now more common for couples to have cohabited than to have married. According to Pew Research, 59% of adults aged 18 to 44 have lived with an unmarried partner, while only 50% have been married. And nearly 40% of adults have cohabited with more than one partner. Most Americans support these changing behaviours. Nearly 70% agree that cohabitation is fine, even if a couple doesn't plan to get married. Only 14% of us now say that it's never acceptable for an unmarried couple to live together. But this is nothing new. Indeed, it's remarkably like the world Jesus faced in the first century. Both cohabitation and divorce were commonplace in the Greco-Roman world, including easy access to divorce among practicing Jews. Many religious leaders of the time endorsed men walking away from their wives with the simple issuance 
of a certificate of divorce. We are in a series of talks on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is challenging us afresh to consider the abundant new life we've been called to live in him. The sermon is God's manifesto for human flourishing and a call to right, radical righteousness. A righteousness that can only be lived out in the power of his Holy Spirit. The passage we are considering today is no less radical than any of the others we've covered in our series. And it's provoked huge debate and disagreement about its interpretation and application pretty much since the early days of the church, right up until now. I'm sure I am not going to settle that debate today, but I do hope that the Holy Spirit will reveal something of Jesus' heart towards us in the text, as well as encouraging and challenging us to live in the good of his life-giving word. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In this passage, Jesus is challenging a popular interpretation of the law of Moses concerning the circumstances in which it permits divorce. His response is really blunt and would likely have stunned his disciples and listeners. To understand why Jesus reacted so strongly, it's helpful to link it to a later encounter he had with the religious leaders concerning divorce, where he explains the reasons for his strong reaction. Let's begin with the Pharisees' question in Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Some religious leaders of Jesus' time, from what was known as the School of Hillel, had come up with a novel interpretation of the Mosaic Law that gave the impression it was okay for a man to get divorced for any reason. The Pharisees were looking to see if they could trick Jesus by asking him what he thought of their interpretation. Theologian David Instone Brewer explains, the any cause divorce was invented from a single word in Deuteronomy 24.1. Moses allowed divorce for a cause of immorality, or more literally, a thing of nakedness. Most Jews recognize this unusual phrase as talking about adultery, but the Hillel rabbis wondered why Moses had added the word thing or cause when he only needed to use the word immorality. They decided this extra word implied another ground for divorce. Divorce for a cause. They argued that anything, including a burnt meal or wrinkles not there when you married your wife, could be a cause. Under the terms of one of these any cause divorces, all a Jewish man had to do to get rid of a wife he no longer wanted, usually because he wanted to marry somebody else, was to hand her a certificate of divorce. 
This interpretation had become the predominant teaching about divorce in the first century. And alas, it reveals attitudes towards marriage and divorce that are not too different from some of the attitudes we find so prevalent in our world today. Many in our culture, and even in the church, want to be able to enjoy all the benefits of marriage-like relationships, but without any of the cost or commitment needed for a marriage to truly flourish. It might just have been men in the first century, but today there seem to be many of us that want to be able to get out of our commitments to our partner, for whatever reason, we want to. When speaking about marriage and divorce, we often hear people say things like, I married him because he completes me, until he didn't anymore. Surely it's not fair to hold me to vows that I made in a different stage of my life. What if my circumstances change? What if I fall out of love with her or find someone else that fits me better? I guess that on bases like these, when we're getting everything we want out of a relationship, we'll probably stay in it. But if we aren't, then we feel entitled to an escape clause. We want an easy way out. We want a simple, any cause divorce, just like the first century religious leaders were offering. So how did Jesus respond when he was asked about any cause divorce? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. In a similarly strong manner to his response in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus let the Pharisees know he was not impressed by their question about divorce. He responded to them with incredulity, asking whether these so-called religious experts had actually read Genesis 1.27 and 2.24, the verses he quoted in his answer. These verses, Jesus said, show that God himself joined, that's literally yoked together, a husband and a wife as part of his creative design, such that they are now one flesh. And therefore, it was wrong for anyone to do something that would separate them, lest they be found guilty of rebelling against God. It's not that they can't be separated, 
it's that it's wrong to break apart something that God has joined together. Marriage is one of God's most beautiful and mysterious gifts to mankind, established as a part of his original design for creation. In coming together in marriage, a man and a woman aren't just partnering up to enjoy life together, to get access to better tax benefits, to have great sex, and maybe one day to have a family. I've got no complaints about any of those things. But it's so much more. In the marriage of a man and a woman, something intensely beautiful and mysterious happens. The two become one flesh. This union testifies to and reenacts the very structure of humanity as God created it. The husband and the wife become, as Adam cried out in joy and delight when he saw Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And that's why divorce is so damaging. It tears apart a union designed by God to be for life. Jesus took such a strong position on divorce because it marks the destruction of one of God's most beautiful gifts to mankind. Former Dean of the School of Theology at Southern Baptist Seminary, Russell Moore said, Divorce is not just the rearrangement of a living situation or the moving of a name from one government registry to another. Divorce is dismemberment. In the union of marriage, a husband and wife are, as Jesus teaches, one flesh. In essence, spouses are members of each other's body. Through the practice of any cause divorce, the religious leaders reduced marriage to a contract of convenience for husbands. In the first century, this not only undermined the whole idea of marriage, but it also placed women in a terrible predicament. The plight of divorced women in Jesus' day was often desperate. It was generally extremely difficult for a divorced woman to find work, housing or sustenance. This meant that divorce inevitably led most women to remarry if they possibly could. So, by divorcing his wife, a man was virtually forcing her to get remarried. While humanly speaking, such a divorce did break the former marital obligations, from God's point of view, it never should have happened. There was no biblical basis for it. And so those bringing about these divorces would be causing their partners to commit adultery if they had to remarry in order to survive. Jesus' emphasis in these passages on divorce is not um, about the victim forced to enter a second marriage to survive, but on the hardness of heart of the husband who divorces his wife 
for unbiblical reasons. Jesus is reminding his listeners of the importance of marriage in God's eyes, while also exposing the injustice against women by holding the husband responsible for weaseling out of his vows and creating a situation where his divorced ex-wife cannot remarry without committing adultery. The stigma she bears and the position into which she's placed have been imposed on her by her husband's sin. So it's not surprising Jesus had a strong reaction to it. Any cause divorce might not be putting women in the same physical predicament today, but any time either partner tries to weasel their way out of their commitments and makes their spouse, or anyone else for that matter, responsible for their sin, that's just wrong. Anytime we make marriage exclusively about our personal fulfillment with an escape clause, if it doesn't turn out how we want it to be, we turn one of God's most beautiful gifts into a hideous, self-centered caricature. At this point, I need to take a moment to make clear what I am not saying about marriage and divorce in this talk. I am not saying that a person should remain in a marriage when faced with an abusive partner, whatever form that abuse might take. Abusers often weaponize spiritual language, taking the Bible out of context, just like the Pharisees did, to cover their abuse and force compliance from their victims. Now, I'm not talking about everyday disagreements and rows we probably all have from time to time with our spouses. I am talking about dehumanizing abuse. If you are facing abuse, whether that's any form of physical abuse or emotional abuse that robs you of your personhood, your God-given value as a human being, please can I urge you to seek help. If you're being abused, your abuser has broken their vows and has destroyed any rights they had for you to remain in the marriage. Please get yourself out of danger. You may be able to find ways to work things out with your spouse, provided there's been real repentance and demonstrable life change. But there is nothing in the Bible that requires you to live in a place of danger. That's an affront to the message of the gospel, as well as to Christ himself, the friend of the broken who came to set the captives free, not to force victims of someone else's sin back into a place of abuse. Consider what Russell Moore who puts it even more strongly said, divorce for domestic violence is not a sin. It's about sin, all right, but it's the sin of the abuser, not the sin of the abused who decides to divorce. The abused in our churches and in our communities need to see us applying the Bible the right way and they need to see us embodying the Jesus Christ who protects the vulnerable. God designed marriage 
as a part of his plan for us to flourish as human beings. It is one of God's most wonderful gifts to humankind, established as a part of his original design for creation. But that's not all. It's even more than that. Marriage also points to the very purpose of creation itself, for God to be eternally glorified through a people for himself. It points to the very nature of God's relationship with his people. In the Old Testament, Isaiah describes God as Israel's husband and redeemer who has called a people to himself. Hosea speaks of God's eternal betrothal of himself to his people in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Doesn't that sound a lot like the marriage vows that we make to our spouses? God committed himself to tenderly provide for his bride, saving her, bringing her across the Jordan into Canaan, faithfully sustaining, feeding, and loving her. Yet time and again, Israel proved to be an unfaithful spouse. Despite the appeals and actions of the prophets, Israel refused and abused God's love and turned to idols, breaking her vows and undermining their marriage. Israel failed to live up to her vows and stubbornly refused to repent or return to God. But God never gave up. Despite Israel breaking the covenant, God remained utterly faithful to his commitments, declaring through his prophet Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. All this points, of course, to the wonderful picture of our fully stored eternal relationship with Christ achieved through his work on the cross, where Jesus willingly and gladly lay down his life for us. Such was the extent of his love and commitment to us. We are married to Christ. The church is his bride and our human marriages reflect that glorious news. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians 5.32 when he refers to the one flesh relationship between a husband and wife, reflecting the profound mystery of the relationship of Christ and the church. Our marriages are about so much more than just us. In her book, Impossible Marriage, co-written with her husband Matt, Laurie Krieg said, when we married people love each other well, we serve as a metaphor to single people for how God wants to become one with them. When single people love Jesus well and have a beautiful relationship with the church body, they serve as a metaphor to us for how we will all be in eternity. Revelation 19 gives us a glimpse of that eternity. 
John describes the rejoicing in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride of Christ, that's the church, has been made ready for her marriage to the Lamb. In Revelation 21, he goes on to describe the new heavens and the new earth, the holy city, the church, prepared as a bride for her husband. A loud voice from God's throne declares, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Maybe you thought your marriage was just about you and your husband or wife. Maybe you never realised it was part of something so much bigger. A reflection of Christ's relationship with the church and of God's plans for the cosmos. That's why marriage is so important. Undermining it and causing divorce doesn't just devastate individuals and families as terrible as that is, but sadly, it also reflects on the gospel and God's glorious ultimate purpose for mankind. Laurie Krieg also commented, what is the purpose of marriage? To point to God. When a man and woman are united as one through marriage, we become a metaphor of the way Christ and the church are one. Marriage points to both the future and present reality that Jesus Christ wants to marry us, the church. Married people embody the gospel. Married people embody Jesus's embodied sacrificial one flesh love for us in their sacrificial one flesh love for one another. And that's why our commitment to our wedding vows is such a big deal. That's why Jesus was so strong in his reaction to the Pharisees' questions about divorce. Marriage is a big part of God's plan for humankind. It's an amazing gift designed for our flourishing. It's a picture of the gospel. God's desire and plan to redeem a people for himself. And it points to an eternal future marriage with Christ where every last destructive vestige of sin is gone forever. for the married couples in our church. Discuss practical ways we might support those couples in keeping their vows. For those that are married, 
Spend some time before God remembering and recommitting to your wedding vows. If there are things you need to repent for and change, do it. Set aside some time to pray and discuss with your spouse how well you are loving and serving each other. Discuss things that you might do together to strengthen your marriage. For anyone facing difficulties in your marriage, please speak to a church leader or trusted Christian friend. If you are facing abuse, please don't let it go on. Speak to a church leader to help you find the specialist resources that you need.